Because it was off. That's why. Can you hear me better now? Is it, can you hear me too well? You know what I mean by that. <laughs> okay. I thought I had put that on. Obviously, I hadn't. All right. Turn with me again to Matthew 13, please. Verses 44 through 50 and... Well, I will read verses 44 and 45. This evening, we will be focusing on, excuse me, verses 44 through 46. This evening, our emphasis will be uh, on verses 47 through 50, but I want to remind you of the whole passage because I think it does belong together. This is God's word. Listen reverently as I read. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it is filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, we thank you for all of Scripture, even and perhaps in some ways especially the sobering portions of Scripture that cause us to see things in their true light and show us the true cost of not serving you. This, Lord, is such a passage would you please use it um, in ways that are helpful to our spiritual growth and our desire to have Jesus as our perpetual king? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we looked at the uh, first two of these three parables and noted uh, in those two parables that uh, they're very similar in their teaching. Uh, the points are almost identical. There is uh, one significant uh, difference, uh, but again, I, I don't want to spend time on that tonight, and it's not really uh, so significant that it's worth delving into uh, in this sermon. But the... Uh, 
parable of the uh, man who finds the treasure, the hidden treasure in the field, uh, and the parable of the pearl of great price have lessons that are virtually identical. In both cases, we noted this morning <clears throat> that uh, both of these individuals, the man who was working the field and the merchant looking for uh, fine pearls, both of them uh, exhibit great joy upon finding their respective treasures. One is a hidden treasure, one is a pearl. But in both cases, these men exhibit great joy at finding uh, the treasure. But again, this points to the treasures, both treasures point to something uh, higher than themselves. They represent Jesus and his kingship, perpetual kingship unto and into eternity uh, over our lives. And this is a joy that we should have ourselves when we consider our Savior and we contemplate his lordship in our lives uh, and that lordship into heaven and into eternity uh, and all that that represents and all the blessings that that will bring to us and is bringing to us and will bring to us in fuller measure uh, when Jesus returns finally and our bodies are united with our souls if they've been separated by death. The, both of these parables also pointed to uh, and speak of the longing that both of these individuals <clears throat> possessed once they saw the prize, once they saw either the hidden treasure or the pearl. They both were determined to have it, wanted it, and longed for it. Um, and we saw this morning, uh, I pointed out this morning, that uh, a truly saved person who has been truly regenerated by the uh, Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, uh, immediately wants Jesus and continually wants more of Jesus and continually wants to be in greater and fuller submission to God through <clears throat> the messianic King Jesus and his loving rule over the course of our life and again into eternity. And it's something that a true Christian wants. <clears throat> true Christians do not <clears throat> want Jesus merely as Savior as uh, a way to avoid divine wrath. Yes, we should want to avoid divine wrath, and there is nothing wrong with wanting that. But the true believer who has received Jesus or sees Jesus and wants Jesus, wants Jesus to be his master, to be his king, to be his Lord, and uh, wants that perpetually, ongoingly, throughout life, and increasingly so as the Christian life proceeds forward. We also saw, and I noted, that both of these men uh, were so determined to have the prize that they discovered or happened upon that they sold everything uh, that they held dear, that they possessed that was of value in order to obtain it, the prize. And we pointed out, and this was perhaps the most uh, significant point in both parables, that what this means is points to the willingness of the born-again individual uh, to renounce everything that might hinder his relationship with Christ and his 
um, attainment of the fullness of what Jesus has as he rules over us. And we ourselves as Christians will want that and desire that. And if we don't have that, we need to ask God to give us those kinds of desires. That we would be more fully, uh, and we would desire to be more fully yielded uh, to Christ and consistently yielded to Christ. That brings us to the third of these three parables that is the second point in the sermon. And that is that the kingdom of God, we learn from this parable, will be, it includes and will be consummated by the day of judgment. <clears throat> now in this third parable, I talked about uh, this morning about how the kingdom of God uh, has a basic uh, shorthand definition, which is the kingship of God in Christ in our lives and in, in the church. Uh, but it has additional nuances that are often come along with it, and it varies depending on which parable uh, or where uh, uh, the concept is being discussed by Jesus or Matthew or whomever. And in the case of this third parable, the kingdom of God concept differs from the first two parables to some degree. <clears throat> in the third parable, excuse me, visible manifestation of Jesus' kingly reign, which is, by the way, the visible church. That collective visible manifestation of Christ's lordship on earth is central to the idea of the kingdom of God as it's described in this particular parable. It is the foremost element of, um, uh, if you will, in the, in the parable, the, the uh, uh, no, there are a few parables, there's really only perhaps one other, that is the parable of the wheat and the tares, where the kingdom of heaven and the visible church approach each other uh, in, and become not quite the same, but very close to one another. So that is very prominent in this third parable, uh, the visible church and uh, its... Uh, and what is going on in the visible church or will go on in the visible church. I'll say more about that toward the end of, uh, of the sermon here. But, so here we have, uh, I'll read it again. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like uh, a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. Uh, and when it is filled, they, that is the fishermen, drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So the comparison here is with fishing. And it is evident, by the way, let me back up here because this is, uh, helps to understand what's going on. If you look back at verse 36 of this chapter and then also look at verses uh, 51 through 53, and we're not going to do that right now, but just look at it later and trust me for the moment. It is evident from these verses that Jesus is talking to his closest disciples at this point. He's no longer talking to the crowds. He spoke earlier in the chapter, the parable of the soils uh, to the crowd <clears throat> and also the parable of the wheat and the tares. But he spoke to his closest disciples uh, what 
proceeds from verse 36 onward. Uh, the interpretation, the crowd didn't get the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares. The disciples did. And they also got these additional uh, uh, parables, the parable of the hidden treasure, of, of the pearl of great price, and now the dragnet as well. But it was just to this small group of men. And I say that because, as you all know, several of these men were fishermen by trade. Uh, so when they heard Jesus describing fishing and the business of fishing, uh, they identified with it immediately and knew, ex and knew exactly what he was talking about. It was no mystery to them. And it's fairly safe to say that even those in the inner band of disciples who weren't fishermen themselves were surely familiar at least with the basic elements of the business of fishing. Uh, most anybody in that day probably was. Um, and so this was uh, familiar. The, the concepts that Jesus is referencing here are familiar uh, to all the men before him. And so Jesus opens the parable by comparing the kingdom of heaven to uh, the, a large fishing net and to what is done with that large fishing net, net by fishermen. The whole process is alluded to, the casting of the net into the sea, the dragging of that net uh, around a school of fish, the pulling of that net onto the shore by uh, a number of men, uh, and, the, and, and the, the process that goes on after that, the sorting process. So first, he makes reference to the fact that the net is cast into the water, and as it is drawn in, uh, fish of of uh, various different varieties are caught in the net and are pulled uh, ashore to be, uh, to be sorted. And once the net is full, once the fishermen deem the net to be full, they draw that net together, pull it up on the beach, and then uh, the fish are, are actually sorted. So they, how do they sort them? Well, they sort them basically into two categories. Um, there are those that are edible and therefore can be either eaten by the uh, families of the fishermen or sold to others who will in turn eat them. So they're the, the fish that are edible and saleable, and those are thrown into containers, buckets probably, or baskets, and they are trucked off to wherever they will be used. But the rest, those fish that are undesirable, either because they are cer ceremonially unclean, they don't have scales, or because they're just junk fish that have little meat on them and uh, really can't uh, real, uh, realistically be used to feed people, they are discarded. They are cast aside and thrown out, in fact. And it is this final step of sorting in the fishing business, sorting good fish from bad fish, it is this final step of the fisherman's activity that is the focus of Jesus' in attention in his own divinely inspired interpretation of his own parable. So the parable uh, lasts, as I, as I indicated by the way I read it a moment ago, from verses, verses uh, 47 and 48. That's the parable. But then Jesus interprets the parable. And in the interpretation, the only aspect of the parable and of the fishing experience that he focuses on is the sorting. It's the only thing he touches on and he interprets and deals with and wants to deal with, obviously. So this parable, let me tell you what it's not about. 
contrary to what some commentators assert, who aren't reading it carefully, this parable is not about the age of gospel proclamation in which we now find ourselves. This is not the issue, this age is not, in other words, this, this parable is not about fishers of men who are sharing the gospel uh, as we go out into the week and interact with people at work and in our neighborhoods and in our families and that we are, we are the ones who are doing the fishing and we are sharing the gospel and that's the gathering, uh, gathering in of the net and that sort of thing. That is an erroneous understanding of this particular parable. Now that's found elsewhere, obviously, but it's not what's going on here. The focus here is not on the gospel age prior to the second coming. The focus of this parable is solely on the second coming and the judgment that happens at the second coming of Christ by Christ. The final separation, if you will, of men. So there are some lessons that we are very, uh, that are very important for us to understand from Jesus' emphasis on, on this sorting process. One thing that we can glean from uh, a lesson, if you will, that we can glean is that there is no race, there is no category of human beings, uh, men, women, children, uh, uh, Caucasian, um, all the various varieties of races, there is no one who is going to be excluded and who will escape the judgment, who will not face a final judgment before Christ, the righteous judge, at the end of the ages. That includes us. That includes everybody. And this parable alludes to that fact. But that's actually not the principal focus of this parable. I'll get to that in just a second. But another thing that needs to be noted is that there are two groups and only two groups. There are varieties of fish, all sorts of varieties of fish that are caught, but they end up in one of two groups. The first group represented by the, in the parable by the fish that are kept is made up of those whom Christ, acting in his capacity as the great judge on the final day, that group will be publicly acknowledged, acquitted, and accepted as righteous in his sight, in the Father's sight, and the Spirit's sight, at which point he, Jesus, will make those Acceptable ones made perfectly blessed, to quote the Shorter Catechism, to made will make them perfectly blessed in the full, in full enjoying of God to all eternity. That's the first group, represented by the good fish that are accepted and kept by the fishermen, but representing uh, those who are found to be uh, pleasing in God's sight, if you will, before the judgment uh, thrown on the final day. Then there's the second group, <clears throat> represented in the story by the fish that are thrown away. This group is comprised of those whom King Jesus, and that's a good way to describe our Lord, 
those whom King Jesus, whom the great judge will officially in his office as the great judge and finally and fully reject in the day of judgment and on whom he will pour forth his divine judicial wrath in its fullest measure. The people who die before Jesus returns in glory do go to hell spiritually. There is no limbo, there is no purgatory, you all know this. There is hell, and they will experience spiritually hellish torment upon leaving this world. But it's not the fullest torment that they will experience. That will only come in the day of judgment when their bodies are raised and, in, and their bodies join with the damnation that their souls have been experiencing heretofore and will experience a more exquisite torment, if you will. And that will occur on this day. When a verdict that was rendered earlier on is reaffirmed and the body of the soul or the body of the of the damned are united with their souls and experience a greater torment thereby. And it is the fate, it is on the fate of this second group that the parable's emphasis lies. Indeed, there is no mention by Jesus in his interpretation of the parable. There is no mention made by him of the fate of those represented by the good fish. It's merely implied. He assumes his readers know what their fate is. It's good. But he doesn't even speak about them. Jesus deals solely in his comments on his parable with the wicked, with the damned. And this parable, therefore, is above all else a warning to the unbeliever that his judgment, the unbeliever's judgment by God is first of all inevitable and that if he or she does not flee by faith to Jesus as his or her only hope of escaping the full fury of God, that he or she deserves that that individual will experience an eternal existence that is unimaginably dreadful. Literally unimaginably dreadful. Which is alluded to by Jesus in verse 50 when he says they will be will, uh, uh, the, the angels as acting as uh, surrogates or representatives of the judge himself will cast them, that is the wicked, into the furnace of fire, a metaphor for the fires of hell. And there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And lest you think that Jesus here is speaking of all those reprobate heathens out there that don't go to church, look again at verse 49. 
So it will be at the end of the age. What will be the judgment? The angels will come forth and take out the wicked, notice this, from among the righteous. Can that possibly be a description of the sinful, Satan-ruled world that can be described as righteous and Jesus is removing wicked people from among the world that is, has lots of righteous people in it? No. Not, not at all. This statement cannot be referring to the world about uh, uh, the situation that is described as the wicked being removed from among the righteous cannot be referring to the world. It can only be made such a statement of what goes on in the day of judgment in the visible church in which there are both spiritual wheat and spiritual tares present. And while it is the church's solemn responsibility, especially through its leaders, to do the very best they can to not allow uh, false believers to uh, professors to enter into their midst and to remove false professors from their midst when they, uh, it becomes evident that they're truly unbelievers or uh, probably unbelievers. Church discipline is, is a responsibility and a requirement of um, the church, the visible church. We don't always get it right. And tears get in. And I hope this isn't true, but it is possible that there are, there are tears here, even in this small group this evening. If you're a member of this or some other church, let me ask you this. Will you be found acceptable to Jesus, the great judge, on the day of judgment when he returns? whether you're dead, physically, or alive. Will you be found acceptable? The only way you can answer that question is if you are clinging to Jesus as Savior and King. I'll use that word rather than Lord, which, is my, which I tend to use more often, but as Savior and King of your life. Only if that is true of you Will you be found acceptable and pass muster, if I can put it that way, in the final great Aziz, the day of judgment? It's easy to be in the church, to go through the motions, to say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, and to not love and truly cling to Jesus. Ask yourself, am I a pretender? I was going to address somebody who might possibly be here that is not a member of the church, but I happen to know all of you and I know you all are. But it is true that this passage doesn't just 
address only the church and God's judgment on the church. Because again, the reference to the many uh, fish uh, that are gathered, I think, uh, alludes to the fact that there is judgment for um, all sorts of people, including people that are unchurched. Um, they will not escape either, and there are plenty of other passages that make that point uh, very evident. But again, this, this passage is, is for churchgoers. It's sobering. It's scary if you don't know Jesus. But it is not to be scary if you do. So please don't be afraid. Don't second guess yourself or uh, do too much navel gazing as a result of this. Uh, if you know that you are clinging to Jesus and there's nothing that commends you to God uh, that, that would make you uh, even partially fit for heaven, if you know that to be the case and you know that Jesus is the only one that can get you there and you're trusting in him, don't worry. You don't need to be afraid. But this passage should put literally the fear of God into the person who is just showing up because that's what my family does or that's what's socially acceptable in the South or that's what improves my business contacts or whatever. The church that will be with Jesus in glory is the believing, regenerate church. And this passage makes that point very eloquently and poignantly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ we are safe from your wrath, from judgment, from damnation. We are absolutely safe, hidden in the wounds of Christ. But we are open and laid bare to judgment if we are not in him. Lord, we pray that we would ever more cling to Jesus and persevere in that faith in him as our only hope of escape from wrath. And we pray that as we understand that you, Lord Jesus, bore infinite wrath that we deserve as we think on your suffering for us, that we would be moved to greater love and greater gratitude to you and to the Father who sent you and to the Spirit who applied your redeeming work to our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. 
both now and forevermore. Amen.